On September 11th, 2001, our American way of life was attacked. Everyone remembers where they were that day and how their lives changed from that moment on. The American Legion is committed to honoring the memories of those we lost on 9-11 and in the global war on terrorism that followed. As part of that commitment, the American Legion Tango Alpha Lima podcast presents a special series, 9-11-2020. 20 episodes in the 20 days leading up to the 20th anniversary of the attacks that changed the world. Each of the 20 guests delivers a unique first-hand perspective on 9-11 and our nation's response. Here is one of those remarkable stories. All right, we are joined by Master Chief Petty Officer Vincent Pat, who has the greatest bio. I, I get to, when you hear it, it's pretty incredible. And I will say, as sort of foreshadowing, he has the greatest prop in terms of reading a bio that I've ever seen. So Master Chief Patton served as the eighth Master Chief Petty Officer of the Coast Guard from 98 to 2002. A native of Detroit, Michigan, Master Chief Patton enlisted in the U.S. Coast Guard in June 1972. And he initially started out his career in the occupational rating of radio man communications and later changed to yeoman in 1979. He has served uh, afloat tours on too many ships and boats for me to list here. Uh, prior to his selection as the Master Chief Petty Officer of the Coast Guard, he served as the Command Master Chief for the Coast Guard Atlantic area. During this assignment, he was the Senior Enlisted Advisor to Joint Task Force 160 during Operation Support Democracy, which was the largest alien migration operation in history. Here we go, folks. He received his doctorate ed degree in 1984 from American University in Washington, D.C. He earned a master's degree in counseling psychology from Loyola University in Chicago. He earned a Bachelor of Science degree in social work from Shaw College in Detroit, Michigan, and a Bachelor of Arts degree in communications from Pacific College. He also uh, has way more medals than I can read here. Unlike me, he does have a good conduct medal, so congratulations. That I, I appreciate folks who earned that, even though I did not. Uh, Master Chief Patton accomplished the rank of Eagle Scout and was also a former Naval Sea Cadet during his high school years. And here it is, folks. Show us the uh, show us the prop oh, sure. here, Master Chief. Sure he thing. was also selected as one of the Olympic torch bearers in the 2002 Winter Olympics. That right there, folks, is the Olympic torch from 2002 Winter Olympics, which is awesome. Uh, Master Chief Patton accomplished. I said the Eagle Scout. He currently is the senior vice president for leadership development with New Day USA as part of the company's character-driven leadership program. He's a life member of the American Legion and is currently a member of Coast 67 in Bridgeton, Maine, which I will interject here is my birth state. So one of my favorite states. So Master Chief, thank you so much for joining us here today. We're, as you know, doing a sort of 20 year retrospective on 9-11 stories and and yours, you were already the Master Chief Petty Officer of the Coast Guard at that point, correct? Yes, absolutely. So talk to us a little bit about your, your military career and then leading into you know, you get to the pinnacle of where you can be as an enlisted person and then boom, this happens. Tell us what the, tell us the dynamic involved there. Well, you know, uh, and thank you for having me first and foremost. I really appreciate being here. Uh, to start with, as you as you read my bio, you would think that in my 30-year career, I spent it all in school. <laughs> uh, it does give that impression. But no, I, I went out and I did all of the 
things you do in the Coast Guard, uh, being underway and uh, on ships, as well as uh, uh, staff jobs, operational jobs, and so forth. So my career uh, uh, took a, a wonderful turn for me. I started out, as I said, I, I was a radio man, shipboard radio operator, and, uh, and uh, my first ship was in the uh, North Atlantic, and I mean the North Atlantic, where it gets cold up there. I mean, we're talking about close to Greenland and so forth, uh, doing uh, fisheries patrols. Also, back in those days, we had uh, oceanographic research and uh, what we called ocean stations back then. Uh, from there, while I was on ship, I was uh, started taking college correspondence courses. And, you know, we're talking the 70s, so we didn't have the internet. Uh, we didn't have online education. So it was all done by correspondence and uh, through a program way back then called Yasafi, which stood for Armed Forces Institute, United States Armed Forces Institute. So I started out doing that. And when I was transferred to my shore assignment, which was in my hometown of Detroit, Michigan, uh, where I was assigned to an air station there, I was able to go to school and finish up and get my bachelor's degree and my uh, off time. In fact, I had a pretty good deal of how I was able to do that. Uh, from there, I went uh, to recruiting duty in Chicago and I started on a master's degree uh, while I was on recruiting duty in Chicago. And then I got a wonderful opportunity. Uh, the Coast Guard selected me, uh, hand selected me is the term, uh, to work on the development and implementation of the Coast Guard's enlisted evaluation system. This was rewriting the entire enlisted evaluation system. And I was actually an E6 at the time, about to make E7. And uh, when I worked on this program, I was uh, enrolled into American University where I received my doctorate degree in educational research and development. So after completion of that particular program, it was back to sea. I went off, off to uh, Seattle. I went to uh, to an, a ship out of Seattle, but primarily uh, mission was doing Alaska patrols. So spent most of the time in the Aleutian chains uh, doing fisheries boardings and so forth. So I really enjoyed, actually enjoyed doing that, believe it or not. Uh, a very smelly job, though, because you spent a lot of time on these fishing boats and, and checking for checking fish and sure they had uh, 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 they weren't catching endangered species and uh, proper limits and things along those lines. Uh, after that tour, back to Coast Guard headquarters where I actually did sort of a payback for the education and, and I was assigned to training management, moved up to become a, a a master chief at that time, made E9 at that time. And then uh, I was selected to uh, the uh, U.S. Army Sergeant's Major Academy, which, uh, uh, which is really a, a joint service uh, enlisted, uh, senior enlisted uh, 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 training program. And I, I spent six months in El Paso, Texas. Uh, it wasn't enough water there for me. I tell you, it was, <laughs> it was killing me. because not, uh, not a big Coast Guard town, El Paso. That's right. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so but I had a great time uh, playing, playing with the soldiers and as well as other service members. And then from there, I was selected as the Atlantic Area Command Master Chief. And during that time, uh, this was in the mid 90s, uh, uh, early 90s, uh, during that time, uh, there was a big mass exodus of uh, people coming out of Haiti and Cuba at the same time. And if you remember that story, Operation Support Democracy, here's Castro, he, he was uh, letting prisoners out of prisons and sending them to America. And then in Haiti, we had a problem going on where the, pres the newly installed president was, uh, was uprooted uh, uh, and 
uh, UN forces got involved with it. So uh, I was selected to be the, the uh, joint task force senior enlisted advisor. So I got to work with all of the folks that were involved. And we had all, all five branches at the time that were very much involved with that. Uh, and that, of course, led to uh, selection in 1998 as the Master Chief Petty Officer of the Coast Guard, which, of course, as you all know, is similar to the Sergeant Major of the Army, the Sergeant Major Marine Corps, Chief Master Sergeant Air Force, and Master Chief of the Navy. So uh, I got into that high ground, which is really, that was my desired goal when I was in boot camp. I saw the picture of the Master Chief Petty Officer of the Coast Guard, and I said, that's who I want to be one day. Because everybody always said, well, you're getting all this education. Why aren't you an officer? And my desired goal was I wanted to be Master Chief Petty Officer of the Coast Guard. That's the honest to God truth, and, and which is kind of a crazy goal because only one person gets picked for that. So, you know, you really don't have a say in that. You just got to make sure you do the right kinds of things over the course of your career. And when that opportunity comes, that when the Commandant of the Coast Guard makes a selection that, uh, you know, when you're raising your hand, you hope you're the one that gets picked. So that's what happened for me. Only took you 26 short years too. So 26 years. Just a hop, skip, and a jump for you. What? Uh, so how did things change for the Coast Guard uh, after 9-11? Well, that's a great question because, you know, uh, the Coast Guard and its name itself, uh, you know, guarding the coast, uh, you know, the, and I, and I have to tell you a little bit of story of the Coast Guard's history that when the Coast Guard was founded in 1790, it was then known as the Revenue Cutter Service, which was uh, uh, founded by Alexander Hamilton and it was under the Department of Treasury. Uh, and in 1915 is when the the name Coast Guard came into play. And it was the merging of the Revenue Cutter Service and the U.S. Life Saving Service, uh, which were both under the Treasury Department at the time. Uh, now, I, I have to tell you that because in 1915, uh, the, uh, the, the country was actually really getting a little concerned, particularly with looking at uh, borders because uh, the uh, World War I was kind of looming and so forth. And uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson, who was president at that time, was starting to beef up uh, at least uh, existence of issues toward borders support. And so when the name was given Coast Guard, it was really given for that sole purpose to be doing what it was to guard the coast. So to tell you that and to fast forward uh, uh, on, uh, on, on uh, September 11th, 2001, which, uh, which was quite, a, quite an interesting part in, in itself, is that uh, we had, as we all know the story of what happened in both in, uh, in New York, uh, here in Washington, D.C., uh, at the Pentagon, and, uh, and in uh, Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where the, uh, uh, the crash of one of the aircraft that comes up. But let's focus toward New York itself, that when the Twin Towers uh, came down, uh, it completely shut down the city of New York, completely shut down the city of New York. And so you had roughly about uh, 3 million commuters on Manhattan Island that had to get off of Manhattan Island. And so that task went to the smallest service at the time, the Coast Guard. And, and so our task of that was we, uh, we, we worked very closely together with, uh, with getting uh, vessels of all types, all types of vessels, anything that floated. 
to help get people uh, off of uh, Manhattan Island. And then on, on top of that, and that was a very monumental task, I might add, when you think about the number of people and, you know, in a service of about 40,000 people. And of course, we didn't have them all in New York, although it seemed that. But, uh, but the Coast Guard, other level of responsibility, particularly uh, in a situation that happened on 9-11, is that, you know, we are the first responders uh, for uh, support at, um, of, of all nuclear power plants on U.S. navigable waters. Now, when you think about it, 70% of, of our nuclear power plants in the United States are located near uh U.S. navigable waters, and so the tiny service of Coast Guard was responsible for that. And we had, we enacted our our reserve, uh, and so it was a really big thing that we had going on at the time. And and so as a result of that, uh, after 9/11, uh, the Coast Guard really began to to make a big change in itself. Well, we were always known as the lifesavers. And whenever everybody thought of the Coast Guard, mostly you thought of the Coast Guard in terms of saving uh, 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 people at sea, uh, uh, boating accidents, taking care of that and so forth. But today, when you look at the Coast Guard, now we still do that. But you see the Coast Guard much more in a military postured atmosphere uh, for example, when uh, when when uh, merchant vessels that transit into the area and so forth, they're under escort by the Coast Guard, as well as uh, cruise ships and so forth coming in and out of our ports. The Coast Guard is responsible for that. We do a lot more involvement uh, within our ports and waterways uh, for support to ensure that uh, uh, no espionage or anything of that nature is being taken taken place. So the Coast Guard really sort of made a big change that uh, I think it's very appropriate where the Coast Guard is today. And as I mentioned that when we started out in uh, 1790 under the, the Treasury Department and in 1967, we were under the Department of, of uh, Transportation. And then uh, in 2003, when uh, Homeland Security was created, the Coast Guard moved under Homeland Security, and that's where we really belong. That's really where we where we should be, and that uh, says a lot about our missions today. Yeah, I, I would. I, I wish they would correct the error where if the government shuts down, the Coast Guard doesn't get paid. Oh yes, um, which is obviously something the Legion's worked on a long time. All right, Ashley, you are up. Thank you for waiting patiently. I'm just like absorbing all of the awesomeness. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm just like, man, he's such a good storyteller. Yeah. And I'm like, what am I going to ask him? I'm like, hmm. So I kind of want to dive in a little bit more about, you know, September 11th. And, you know, obviously, like you are orchestrating this like mass exodus for folks on Manhattan Island. You know, what was communications like on that day? Like, what did you know? What didn't you know? I mean, obviously, like, you know, 2001 versus 2021 communications are different, right? Like, so we've heard some, some previous guests kind of explain that, like, you know, you couldn't just pick up, you know, and everyone have like a cell phone. Not everyone could like call somebody. Nobody knew what was going on. There was a lot of confusion. You know, how did you kind of help, you know, your folks kind of break through some of those communication barriers and like, what did you know? What didn't you know? And how did you, how did you work it out? Well, you know, this is one of the, the things that I love about my service was uh, how we can make anything happen with nothing. And, and that's, that's the honest to goodness truth. Uh, and there's many uh, Coast Guard stories that I can uh, compound that, but, but, 
uh, more specific to 9-11 was the fact that uh, uh, Coast Guard Sector New York, which is the uh, main operation, uh, they're located on Staten Island. Uh, you've got, a, you've got a, uh, uh, an operating staff of about uh, 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 2,700 people in that whole area. And that's, and, and that's pretty big for the Coast Guard, you know, when you have that large number of people. And uh, although not uh, all of them are all dedicated into one particular area of operation, everybody does different kinds of things. But came 9-11, it, it all came together. That, that 2,700 people, they, you, if, if you were to know it, or, or there's books and stuff to read about what the Coast Guard's involvement during 9-11, you would swear that, that there were about 100,000 people in the Coast Guard that were there. So what happened was, is that we, we relied on our, our, our auxiliaries, which is our volunteer uh, organization. Uh, as well as, coming up, correct? That's right. And yeah. we got, and our, our reservists, we relied on them and so forth. And, and it was uh, uh, not just a little bit of word of mouth. Uh, uh, the good news is, is that cell phone operations was in existence th at that time, but nowhere to the extent to how it was today. Uh, so what came out of that was uh, we just had some, some pretty well dedicated people that had their ear to the ground, uh, very resourceful in terms of of, get, of who to contact, how to get connected. And when we set up our communications uh, 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 command uh, there in New York and so forth, it, it was envious of the fact that when we set it up, uh, that allowed the New York uh, uh, first responders, the police and fire department, uh, the National Guard that also came involved, they all fed off of our, our Coast Guard sector, uh, New York operation. We just, but I, I would tell you, and, and if I run the clock back uh, to that particular day 20 years ago, uh, the day before 9-11, the, uh, the way that set up of that operation, you would have sworn it would take at least two years to make something like that happen. But here on 9-11 and the day after and the day after and so forth, that uh, we just made it happen. I, I wish I had a much uh, uh, shorter answer to tell you how that came about. But but that that in itself, I think, was just amazing uh, what our what our folks in the Coast Guard had done. Uh, there's a book uh, uh, called uh, Rogue Wave, uh, written by a guy named uh, Pete Capaletti, uh, who is a Coast Guard reservist. And he actually uh, uh, put all that in writing as to how things happened uh, uh, during 9-11 in New York and so forth. But, uh, but you know, I, I, it gives me an opportunity to at least tell you a uh, my 9-11 story which uh, I, just as I mentioned, and I get chills about it, but this is a, a, a true and amazing story. Uh, when 9-11 when occurred, I was, uh, I, was in, I was actually in Washington, D.C. at the time. Uh, and, you know, and this, when this all occurred, uh, Coast Guard headquarters is across the river from, uh, from the Pentagon. So we were not at the Pentagon. However, when the, when the plane hit at the Pentagon, uh, we can clearly see where the smoke was and, knew what was going on. Of course, we had our TVs. Those of us that had TVs in our offices were able to see those particular things. Uh, within a matter of a day, uh, I and the uh, the commandant of the Coast Guard, Admiral Jim Loy, we, uh, we, we uh, hopped on a helicopter because that was about the only thing that would get us up to New York. And uh, 
went to see the setup of the operation. And this was actually, I think this was two days after 9-11 because we didn't want to go up there at the time it was happening with so many other things going on. And uh, when we got up there, uh, this was the first opportunity that we were able to get within uh, the ground zero location of, of, uh, of, of what occurred there with the Twin Towers and so forth. And just a few blocks from uh, the World Trade Center is a, uh, is a church, which is still there today, a Trinity Church uh, that's located in, uh, uh, like I said, a few blocks uh, on Rector Street in New York. And of course, needless to say that when the, uh, the World Trade Center and the financial center, everything now kind of came down and, and flames and smoke and so forth, this little church, uh, you know, was almost undamaged. I say almost undamaged because it, it received all of the debris that came from the, the, the Twin Towers onto uh, the church property. There's also a, a, a church graveyard, which uh, uh, buried in that graveyard is Alexander Hamilton, the father of the Coast Guard. And, and of course, it, the only other thing was a couple of broken windows that occurred at the, at, at the church. As uh, Admiral Loy and I, when we were doing our, our walk around uh, uh, after the, uh, the disaster, we come upon the church and, and seeing the damages and so forth. First of all, we were just amazed at the fact that uh, while everything around that church was essentially gone, uh, we, we came around and we looked at the church and saw that, like I said, it was you know, just a couple of broken windows, but lots and lots and lots of, uh, of, of debris and so forth. So the Admiral looked at me and said, Master Chief, I want you to get some people to clean this, clean this churchyard up. And, uh, you know, I kind of looked at him. I said, well, I think we got a lot of other things going on, you know, <laughs> cleaning up the churchyard. We'd love to do it, but, there's a, but, I, but you know, I didn't say anything other than, yes, sir, saluted smartly. And then, of course, uh, I carried it over to the uh, uh, the uh, the sector uh, command master chief and uh, and said, hey, listen, I know you're thin, but the old man says he wants this uh, uh, churchyard cleaned up. And of course, the big key to that is, is that, you know, uh, our father of the Coast Guard is buried here. So he looked at me, too, and I says, look, I know this is hard, but just get a few people and let's just start on it. You know, every few moments that we could have among the other things of what's going on. I mean, we were doing all kinds of stuff, hazmat uh, uh, monitoring, you know, we had a lot of things going on right there in the ground zero area. In addition to the fact that uh, while we had had done the mass exodus of people off the island, there was still so much that had to be done uh, there in, in New York itself. Well, anyway, I go back to, to, uh, to Washington thinking that this is going to take a couple of weeks to do. Well, two days later, the Master Chief calls me up and he says, Master Chief, you need to get back up here. And I said, uh, okay, what's the matter? He says, well, you know, I wish I could tell you, but this is one of those things you've got to see. So I said, okay. I mean, of course, you know, it wasn't easy to get up there and so forth. So, uh, so I was able to, uh, to, to, to get a, to get a, uh, uh, an Air National Guard, uh, uh, Hilo flight up to uh, New York and uh, went to the ground zero area where Trinity Church was. And he says, look, Master Chief. So I looked. The entire 
churchyard area was clean, spick and span clean. Uh, there were piles and piles of, of, uh, of garbage bags, which every, every piece of, of uh, debris uh, around the ground zero area was, was considered as, uh, as, as, uh, as, as criminal evidence. So you had to save everything. So, but there was, I mean, it was, I mean, it was stacked high and so forth, but this thing took two days and I couldn't believe it. I mean, you know, and he says, Master Chief, that's why I had to call you up here. I says, how many guys did you get to do this? He said, well, to be quite honest with you, I got six people. I said, six people did this? He says, no, that's not what happened, Master Chief. He says, six people started. And then all around us, there were all kinds of workers, first responders, and all kinds of people around that watched what was going on. And they stopped what they're doing. And then they went over to the churchyard and they started helping to clean it up. See, what, 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 what occurred here is that we, we looked at the, so much damage, destruction, and you know, so much negative vibes of, of being in the ground zero area. But then to see this little church and to see that uh, it survived, you know, if 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 you weren't into uh, spiritual intervention, mm -hmm. if you were there that day, you would be at that point in time, uh, because it truly uh, told us and it showed us the fact that uh, that 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 God told us that look, this is hallowed ground that we need to take care, we need to fix, we need to work with, and so we did that. So, the Master Chief told me that all of a sudden. Hundreds of people worked day and night to clean that churchyard up. And again, I tell you, I couldn't believe it. You have to Google it. To, uh, I'm sure there's yeah. a lot of stories on there that will tell you about that. But I couldn't believe it. And, you know, that's the story that sticks in my head today because out of all of the destruction, you know, arising from the ashes was hope. And that church stood as the beacon of hope and really shown something there. So I, I'll never forget that story. You're probably telling the wrong people to Google it because now Ashley and I will lose two days looking up stuff about Trinity Church and Jeff will not even lose a half a second of sleep. Because what, no. what Jeff will do is wait for CB to text him the best, the best link. Like CB goes through all of them, he filters the links and he goes, this is the one. To me. All right, Jeff, you are up with a question here for the Master Chief. All right. I just want to say it, I'm impressed by this whole thing, and it and it it should be pointed out that it all started in Michigan. Pure Michigan. Pure Michigan. Pure Michigan. <laughs> say yes to Michigan. So you did a lot of things, and I I pointed out that I, I think that your your story going to 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 what I want to ask about 9-11 started with being an Eagle Scout because that's that in and of itself is no easy task and Boy Scouts are always prepared. I, and I did one, uh, one month in Weeblos <laughs> until they took us out and we were snowshoeing somewhere cold and I said, no, nah, I'm good. So I was out. <laughs> so it's amazing that it's amazing that you did that, but it, all of the things and people can read them. I'm sure we're going to put it up there. This bio. Could any of this prepare you? Because you were in the coast, as you said, your job was to guard the coast, but that's from threats from the outside. Now you're dealing with a threat that's already inside. And, I'd, and I'm just curious about what could, did any of this prepare you 
to deal with the task of dealing with the aftermath of what happened what happened on, on 9-11 and what and just kind of describe your mindset and the people around you and how you drew on like an impressive uh, list of skills and experiences. Well, you know, I think the only thing that, that, that my, my life, my childhood being an Eagle Scout, as well as being a sea cadet was, uh, was, was the opportunity of, of taking advantage of resources. And that, and because at that level, uh, at time when 9-11 occurred, you know, uh, you know, I didn't get my hands totally dirty. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people that had to do that, but but what my job required to do, it was a lot about inspiration. It was about uh, uh, inspiring others to do the things that had to be done. As I told the story about uh, how our communication setup was 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 a near miracle, and it really was. I mean, uh, the Coast Guard on on the tenth of September did not have the kind of communication setup that it had on on the twelfth of of September, and so. That said, it was that for me, it was about, you know, getting people going and, you know, that uh, the many things of what they had to do and that going that extra mile. And uh, so I had to be the one to sort of make that happen. That was the biggest part of my job. And I and I do owe that an awful lot to uh, to that professional upbringing I had with the sea cadets as well as with the Boy Scouts because uh, that's what I did. And when I was in the Coast Guard, the times I was in the Coast Guard and uh, the types of assignments that I had, as well as even my education aspect of doing that is that, uh, you know, I was never taught about something that was too impossible that you can't get it done. Instead, I was talking about how to work the impossible to make it possible. And uh, so I, I, I'll say that, uh, yeah, I had to draw on an awful lot of my strengths uh, and then transfer those strengths on to uh, the other folks, particularly the worker bees, the people who really, really made it happen uh, that to, to make things go on. And, and, and it, and it really, you know, the other side to that is, is that 9-11 changed the landscape of the Coast Guard in the sense of, like I said, we had uh, the small boat uh, search and rescue stations was just truly with search and rescue. And all of a sudden we're telling everybody that when you go out on boats, you got to carry guns. You got, you know, you're, you're doing a little bit more than just pulling somebody out of the water. You're concerned about uh, uh, sabotage, espionage, you know, all the different kinds of things, which the Coast Guard really has always been involved with, but it was always something in the back. But now it had to come to the forefront. And, uh, and then it was really telling people who were in the Coast Guard that, your, your life in the Coast Guard has changed from, from our motto at that time of the lifesavers to uh, our role in terms of guarding the coast and being uh, uh, homeland security responsible and type of thing. So uh, that truly meant that uh, somebody in a, in a leadership position, particularly the worker bee leadership position that I, I always call my position, was the fact that, uh, that my example was to inspire those people to see where the end result was. So that meant that it was about taking the time, explaining what the mission is and how important it is to the E2, all the way up to the E9, the uh, the warrant officers, the officers, and so forth, because they looked to me uh, as, as I had to look to my senior leadership, my four-star admiral, to make sure I knew what was going on, that I could translate that information to uh, the rest of the crew. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I don't, I don't know what we have to add. That 
Just uh, real briefly, though, Master Chief, uh, you you have a character-driven leadership program that you're working on now. Can you give us a brief synopsis of that? Because I'm fascinated by that sort of endeavor. Sure. Uh, you know, character-driven leadership is really about uh, uh, understanding that we all have personal core values, okay? We all have them. I mean, sometimes we don't realize that we have personal core values, but we do. But you match those personal core values with what an organization's core values are, uh, our company's uh, core values. But, but what are your personal core values to make it happen? Or in the military, in all of our services, we all have uh, 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 core values that we uh, uh, by raising our right hand and repeating the oath of enlistment, as well as the philosophy of what that service is, we have core values. But what are your personal core values to drive that and how to, how to elevate that to help you to be successful in your job, to be successful in your role as a supervisor, to be successful in your role, and most importantly, of mentoring others. So that's what our character-driven leadership is. It's a little bit more extensive than that, but that's sort of the, uh, the quick answer to that. Awesome. Well, Master Chief Patton, we very much appreciate your time. And I think it's safe to say we could probably do another two hours with you if, uh, if we had the liberty to do that. And it might take me that long just to read the rest of your academics, <laughs> the number of votes you are on, and uh, yeah, the, all the other things that you have going on with your bio, which is just incredible. So I absolutely applaud you for that. Uh, so thank you for taking time out. Uh, for everybody else, uh, thank you for listening to the show. Remember, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else. And don't forget, you can leave us comments, and you can email us at tangoalphalima at legion.org. Master Chief, thank you very much. Jeff, Ashley, I will see you guys next week. <laughs> <laughs>